Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again. I've got The Trusted Executive, Nine Leadership Habits That Inspire Results, Relationships, and Reputation. And I've got John Blakey on the line today. Hey, John, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. Hey, so you're way over in England. We were just chatting earlier. And um, gosh, I, I we never got to talk about pubs because that's kind of a, a, a different thing that happens there. Is it... In London and, and other parts of England, is it people not going to pubs as much? Are they hanging out in coffee shops more, or is the pub the focal point? No, it's changing. It's changing. It's changed in my lifetime. You know, when I was uh, growing up, the pub was the center of everything social. But I think now, uh, if I look at my kids, you know, I got a twenty-four-year-old and a twenty-year-old, and they don't really hang out at pubs. They they go to pubs occasionally, but they go to coffee houses, they go, you know, other places, restaurants, going out for a meal. I think the English pub is is gradually losing its footing. And unfortunately, there are a lot of pubs that have closed, you know, the last 10 years. So it's still there, but it's not as um, dominant, you know, in terms of the center of everyone's social lives over here. So, so why is that? Do you think it's that people don't trust pubs anymore? Or is it just that people move on and they want to try something new? Yeah, I think I think it's it's partly choice that there is there is so much choice now, and and so it's fragmenting that market in the same way that I think you know, choice is fragmenting a lot a lot of markets. Um, and it's also maybe a shift in attitude towards drink here that you know we have like a bit of a history of being a bit of a binge drinking nation, <laughs> and uh, you know uh, I think the pub was at the heart of that, and uh, you know with the health agenda and you know social sort of norms changing that maybe some of that culture the pub culture as we call it here uh, is 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 moving on a bit and maybe being seen as a little bit old-fashioned um you know for, for some of some of the the younger kids um it's not to say that people don't drink anymore but it's just uh, a slightly different attitude to to how you drink and when you drink and you know all of that yeah i remember when i was a kid we were amazed that you could get a beer at a mcdonald's <laughs> yeah, we can't get beer at McDonald's over here. You, oh, yeah, I thought you could. Maybe that was one of those, uh, see, urban myth. Exactly. You can in Europe, but uh, not, not here for whatever reason. But no, we can't get beer in McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of trivia for you. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, trust and, and not even on the executive level or, or the business level, just trust in general. Do you think trust is something that you can... Um, earn and and of course you can but in a sense strategically uh, earn or is that kind of the counter of, of trust is like oh yeah this guy's always trying to manipulate me into trusting him i mean that's a pretty uh, thin line there where you can basically shoot yourself in the foot because you're trying to be too trusting yeah yeah you can you can earn trust um but you have to earn it at a deeper level of detail, maybe than was the case in the past, because because there's such transparency now uh, with social media and uh, globalization, and 
the various trends around you know even diversity you know there's so many now uh, now access different access to information that if if your trust doesn't run deep uh, and it doesn't stay consistent at a deep level i think you can run the risk of exposure um and and then if you're exposed as only applying trust at a superficial level for your own you know needs and you're suddenly exposed as a bit of a phony then that's that's a double whammy isn't it you go back you don't you don't go back to zero you go back to you know below zero in terms of the starting point so i think in the past it was easier to trick um that trust factor with people because people didn't have access to the information that they have to really verify that that trust but now people are verifying trust uh, in multiple uh, ways and if you can't um, sustain that trust at a deep level i think you you know you can get exposed and then it gets very tricky indeed mm. well i one thing i do notice and it drives me nuts on social media uh, a lot of people are just lazy and uh, they'll ask a, a question that would be so easy to answer and nine times out of ten i will basically copy and paste their question into google choose an answer and then get back to them within like 30 40 seconds and saying oh you mean this and then they get back oh this is so great and, and it's like you've just proven to me that you're an incredibly lazy person and you, you're not building a lot of confidence so um it, it a lot of the habits that people have and they think they're being clever especially with social media is backfiring and they, they they're not aware of it because in life, people don't tell you that, oh, you've got a little piece of toilet paper on your uh, back of your foot or you've got a piece of food in your mouth until after the event. And then they say, oh, I didn't want to embarrass you. I mean, that's insane. So how does that you know, work with trust? How do you tell people that, you know, dude, you're coming across not very trustworthy right now? Well, I think in the in the business world, it it it, it works uh, very directly in terms of, you know, the the, the buyer's behaviour. You know, I think if uh, if buyers start to get uh, sceptical and they and they they lose trust, uh, then companies these days see that very quickly on 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 the top line and therefore also on the bottom line. And uh, and uh, if you if you take examples, I mean, you know, we. Suppose Volkswagen would be a, an interesting example, you know, of, uh, of you know, talk about a little bit of toilet paper on the on the shoe. I think that was a whole whole role, wasn't it? Um, that that suddenly got uh, exposed, you see, and then, you know, the impact that has on the share price, the the impact that has on legal, um, you know, claims now that are estimated to be in the order of you know fourteen billion dollars uh, on that company, and the impact on on the brand integrity. Uh, you know that that is felt, I think, at a very direct level, um, and again, much more so than I think was the case uh, 15 years ago, where the buyer was maybe less concerned about these um, broader topics. But you know, we're, we're living in a time now where uh, people are becoming much more sensitive to bigger picture uh, issues in the world and, and wanting to see businesses. Um, uh, make an impact, a positive impact on those issues, rather than uh, being these uh, sort of profit-making machines that 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 blot their copybooks um, in, in in you know unexpected ways. Mm. Well, it's almost like uh, companies, especially large companies, are just behind the times and don't believe or are unconscious of what's going on, the revolution that's going on around them. So, so how does a company fix itself if it's not even in, on the right playing field. 
Well, I think you're dead right. I think that, that large organizations are, are, are in danger of living in the past, are, are in danger of getting left behind and, and not anticipating the speed at which th this agenda is, is moving. Now, now how do they, how do they, what do they do about that? I think all, all change starts with, with awareness. I think, you know, you, if you, it's a bit like you said earlier, if, you, if you're walking around with a toilet paper on your shoe and you don't know it's there, then there's not much you're going to do about it. But if somebody points it out to you, um, uh, you know, then you, you at least know there's an issue. And I think one of the purposes of, of writing the book that I've written was, was simply to, uh, to, to hold up a mirror uh, to the reader uh, who, who could be a corporate leader in an organization, hold up the mirror, ask questions, um, put information out there that allows um, those leaders to assess themselves and, and raises their awareness on what is trust, how does it work, how do I as a leader build it, and what do I do when things go wrong and I and I break trust? How do I how do I recover from that? And 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 where am I you know today against people's expectations of, of trustworthiness? So, I think education is a big part of uh, solving this challenge. And and my my hope for my book is that it's just part of a, a groundswell of education that is springing up to help business leaders develop more awareness of what this word means. And, and how significant it's becoming to the modern consumer and the modern stakeholder. You know what? You, you, you brought up my next question. What does trust mean today? Well, trust today, I think, means, means what it always did mean, um, you know, in a sense that, you know, there's been a lot of research done on trust over the last 30 years in terms of, uh, you know, academic research to define trust. And, and, it, and it's quite interesting you know, the formula, the formula I talk about in, in my book in terms of what trust comprises of. And, and trust actually has three pillars. Um, it has a pillar of ability. So we need to trust that you're competent at the job you're purporting to do. Um, it has a pillar of integrity. So we need to know that you're going to walk the talk, that you've got values and basic ethical standards. But then he has a third pillar, which I think is the most intriguing pillar in business, which is this pillar called benevolence. And I think benevolence is a very interesting word. Uh, it comes from the, originally from the Latin benevolent, which is wishing well, wishing well for others. So benevolence is about common human care, kindness, civility. Um, and actually benevolence is one of those three pillars of trust. And I think uh, in business we have traditionally relied upon ability and then integrity as our means of, of, of earning trust, but we've neglected the pillar of benevolence. And I think it's that pillar that in a modern world is becoming more and more significant to this ability to build trust. And the, the other interesting fact about that formula is that it's not an, an addition. It's not trust equals ability, add integrity add benevolence. It's a multiplier. So trust is ability times integrity times benevolence. And the implication of that is if you get a zero, you can be very competent at your job, you know, very high on that ability pillar. You can be very honest, um, very fair, and you can score high on that integrity. But if you're cruel or negligent to your stakeholders and you score a zero on that benevolence, it doesn't matter what you do in those other two pillars. You will score a zero on your on your trust. So, so this is, I think, quite an intriguing formula for people to reflect on and and again to to measure themselves against as as both individual leaders or organisations as a as a you know total 
entity. But uh, but that's that's what trust means, uh, and that's how you know we we need to think about it in terms of earning that trust. What about um, you know people that aren't very benevolent because that's the way they have to run their company? You know, and I'm thinking Steve Jobs. You know, a brilliant guy. He did an amazing. I mean, basically, he revolutionized the phone industry. Um, but he was a real SOB to work with because he was such a perfectionist. I mean, one of the stories is if you had a PhD, uh, you could become the receptionist if we need one. So uh, is there a point where if you're overly benevolent and you're too easygoing and you're over-trusting, it can also be damaging? Well, this is this is a, a raging debate, and I mean, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Steve Jobs because I don't know if you've seen the film uh, Steve Jobs, um, and which is all about the sort of battle really between Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, and and their different perceptions about what great leadership involves. And there's this great moment in the movie where they're having this big row in the middle of an amphitheater before a product launch, and. Um, Steve Wozniak sort of storms off, and as he, but as he's leaving the amphitheatre, he turns around and he shouts back at Steve Jobs. Um, he says, "Steve, it's not digital. Uh, you can be decent and gifted at the same time." Um, and I think this is this is the issue at the heart of this that we've grown up maybe in a leadership paradigm that says uh, you you either need to be decent or gifted. Uh, you either need to be nasty and successful or nice, and you'll come last. Um, I, and I think this is a limiting belief. You know, I, I think one of one of the things I talk about strongly in the book is that my experience of business is that you know there are people who manage to crack it both ways. They are they are gifted and they are decent. They are nice and they are successful. Um, they are they have ability and they are benevolent. Um, and I think um, you know that that's a, an aspiration because if you look at Steve Jobs. You know, I talk about um, these habits being about results, relationships, and reputation. Now, he generated results. Nobody can doubt that Steve Jobs fantastic uh, at delivering results. Relationships, mm, not yeah. so sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, reputation, well, yeah, on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, no. I mean, I think in terms of products, fantastic reputation. In terms of a person and a leader, maybe there are more mixed views on on that and and his long-term legacy as a as a leader so i think this is just a very interesting thing to debate and to 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 look at and wrestle with um my own view is that we're living in a world where it's getting harder and harder uh to not be uh to just rely upon ability and integrity that without that third pillar of benevolence i think more and more leaders more and more organizations are going to find themselves under scrutiny um, by by stakeholders who expect more from the modern leader than just ability and integrity. They actually want to know, do you care? Do you really care about me? Um, do you really care about us? Do you care about something bigger than your own sort of uh, agenda at, at your particular organization, whether that's measured in, in, in profit or, or sales or, uh, you know, I think, I think that's the slightly different world that we're, we're having to grapple with. Hmm. Well, it, it's almost um, goes in hand with, with what's happening with the millennials. I mean, this is the first time in history where uh, millennials, at least in North America, over 60 or 65 percent of the workforce is millennial, and they have an incredible amount of power to change things. And they are 
I would say, number one, looking for a benevolent leader or, or, or boss um, above pay and all that other stuff. So it almost is going to put the whole thing on its head. If you're not benevolent, then... All, like you just said, all the other stuff really doesn't work. Whereas in the last 30, 40 years, you could have maybe got away with it if, if you were a, a quick talker. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a great quote from, um, there was a Harvard Business Review article earlier in the year. It was an interview with a guy called Bob Moritz, who is the US chair of um, PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers. And he said in that um, quote, he said, when I was coming up, we knew what we were doing, but we didn't ask why we did it. Back then, I would have been astonished that PwC's millennials don't only demand to know the organization's purpose, but are also prepared to leave the firm if that purpose doesn't align with their own values. And I think that's quite a powerful, you know, sort of summary of of how things have changed and the different uh, expectations that the millennial, uh, the average sort of millennial sort of perception has of of what they expect from organizations and and the people who lead them. Well, it's pretty fearless position because, you know, you look at traditionally people get their job and they hang on to it tooth and nail regardless of, of whether it's an evil organization that they're working in. And these days it's like, you know what, I'll just go home and live with mom and dad. It'll drive them nuts. But at least I can work at a company that I think has some integrity. And if that continues to be that way, it's going to force organizations to re realize that, wow, we've got to change our HR policy. We've got to change our attitude. I mean, it it could revolutionize the way businesses run uh, globally. And I personally think businesses have to change because if you're running an organization uh, profit at all costs, you're unsustainable and it pisses people off these days. Yeah, well, I'm totally w with that. You I mean, not everybody agrees with us, but... But I'm in that camp that says, um, you know, and there's, a, there's another sort of um, quote that I like, which is from uh, Howard Swartz, the CEO of Starbucks. And, and he said, to be a benevolent organization, you have to make a lot of profit. But if your sole goal is to maximize profit, you're on a collision course with time. And I like that. And, and, and you know, we're not saying this is going to happen tomorrow. The collision with time doesn't happen tomorrow in every sector, in every country, in every company. But I think if you're a leader and you're anticipating where this is going, that it's probably right that there is some sort of collision course. Um, if you if you set your stall out and it's and it's and it's purely uh, uh, this 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 old industrial revolution model of profit, 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 and you're not broadening your sense of purpose, um, you know, to look at a, a broader agenda, a more benevolent agenda, then I think there is this collision course. Um, but but we'll argue about how quickly it's happening and, and when and where it's going to happen. And, you know, there'll be people that gamble that it's not going to happen in their sector anytime soon. But um, I think that this is a, this is a big judgment for, for leaders to really ponder uh, how fast is this moving? How quick do I need to anticipate that agenda and move my organization in a different direction? Well, I think that, you know, there's people out there um, that are already doing it um, one of them, I, I would think, would be the Virgin Group, and and they've kind of got this charismatic leader who who's very affable, and and everybody loves him. Does that translate all the way through the organization? Yeah, and I can't say that I, you know, I haven't worked closely with um, with with Virgin, so I'm, uh, you know, in, in that sense, I'm uh, I'm sort of uh, looking at it as a as a layman's perspective, really, in terms of Virgin. I mean, uh, you know, I think. 
I think their brand is pretty strong. I think their integrity is, integrity is pretty strong. That there is, like all organizations of that scale, that there have been moments when things have faltered. Um, and I sort of feel that Virgin isn't necessarily leading the way anymore with this. I think if you, if you go back 10 years, they would have been one of the organizations that I think you would have talked about and, and Richard Branson, you would have mentioned, has been pioneering with this. But I think now I'd, I'd, the organization that I always um, cite, you know, for me is the, 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 the role model for this, the pioneer for this at the moment is, is Unilever and uh, Unilever's CEO, Paul Polman. I think, I think not, not many of us have heard maybe of Paul Polman as, as much as we've heard of Steve Jobs or, or Richard Branson. But I think in five years' time, a lot more of us will know about Paul Polman because I think what he's doing at Unilever to um, pioneer around um, broadening the purpose of that organization and building uh, trust in that organization. That's probably the example for me that is the most courageous and uh, um, daring in terms of really trying to to test whether this model of business um, you know, works in terms of focusing um, on a broader social purpose and then trusting that that will also translate into great business performance. Um, so it's not profit or purpose, but, you know, purpose now brings with it profit. Um, but it's, it's getting that, you know, which is the master and which is the, the slave in that relationship. And I think Unilever, I would encourage anybody who's listening to just Google Paul Palmer listen to some of his, um, his YouTube uh, video talks about his vision for Unilever and what he's done with this thing that he calls the sustainable living planet that Unilever since he's been there um, since 2009 and it's 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 a very intriguing case study. Well how does what Unilever is doing what's making it so radically different compared to what everybody else is doing? Well, I think with what's what's radically different at Unilever is that um, Paul Polman has committed that organisation to put to put the purpose of that business first. So, so for example, um, the Sustainable Living Plan, which uh, was was implemented from from two thousand nine onwards, had had this uh, had this vision of um, reducing their environmental f- footprint, uh, increasing their positive social impact whilst at the same time doubling sales and increasing long-term profitability. So, so he went for the not either-or world of, you know, you can either be a good company or a profitable, profitable company. He went for the and-and world of being, <laughs> you know, um, both. And the evidence so far is, 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 is quite stunning, really. I mean, in, in the figures, the latest figures I've got in terms of, uh, these are 2014 figures, but nevertheless, at that point, Unilever stated that it's 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 improved the health and well-being of 397 million people on the planet, which is 40% of the way towards its 2020 goal. It's re- it's reduced its um, em- emissions CO2 emissions by 37%, and in the same period, its share price has risen by more than 40%. So I think I think that's quite an intriguing, as I say, sort of combination uh, that um, that by pursuing purpose and broadening that sense of purpose the business results have also flowed now now obviously it's 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 ongoing and who knows what's going to happen tomorrow but I think you know that to me uh, building a, a business with sustainability at its heart with social impact at its heart 
and then trusting that that will also drive business performance, profitability and growth. I think that's not the way I was brought up in corporate life. You know, that, that, it, wasn't, it wasn't that way around. I mean, we, we focused on driving profitability and growth. And if we happen to do a little bit of corporate social responsibility on the side, you know, in order to appease the, the various sort of um, lobbies, then, you know, we'd, we'd do that as a little bit extra. But it's, it's about turning, on it, turning that on its head and making that the core and trusting that actually that will in long term drive this, this virtuous circle, which, which will result in uh, growth and, and, and profit. Um, so I think, yeah, it's a fascinating uh, experiment. Well, I, I think it for uh, a company like Unilever, who, you know, is very diversified, uh, you, you have a higher chance of being successful that way. Um, we had this huge blow-up happen with uh, a company that was producing EpiPen, and they increased the cost of the EpiPen to a ridiculous amount. Social media got a hold of that, and it just blew up in these people's face, and, and then the CEO got called in front of Congress. So basically had the potential of, of destroying that company. Now, way beyond trust is like, oh, I don't trust that company, as in driven to the ground and their uh, their stakeholders and, and the people that own shares in the company were embarrassed to own the shares. If, if you're in a world where that can happen, that strategy about having uh, a more open and benevolent uh, approach to business is a fundamental thing that you have to do or you're not going to be in business in the future. The license to operate is changing. Um, but a lot of uh, a lot of business leaders uh, are still hoping that it's a temporary thing, or hoping that it's a passing fad, uh, and that was that was you know wake up one day and we'll be back to normal, uh, you know. But I think that's called denial. You know, I actually think that's 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 called denial, and, and denial is a coping mechanism, and it, and it and it works for a period of time, but but it's not a solution, um, you know. And I think more and more leaders. As we see these headlines, the stories that you just mentioned, of which we, we, we you know we pick up the papers and we see we see a new one each month, but hopefully it's it's gradually lifting us out of denial and and um, you know the bitter pill of saying actually we need to change here, we need to rewire something. Now change is is difficult, you know it is difficult, um, and and I sort of I have sort of empathy with these leaders that you know uh, were brought up and and trained in leadership in a certain way as I was and. You know, all of a sudden you're thinking, "Crikey, I've got to, I've got to change." You know, I've got to really rewire myself. But that's leadership, isn't it? You, you have to stay ahead. You have to stay relevant, and um, you have to do the change in advance of everybody else. Not, not, not sort of wait to be kicked and you know to be dragged into the the new way, kicking and screaming. So uh, you know, it is, it is change. There's a lot. I talk in the book about nine habits. You know, and and that. I put it that way because I think it is about changing habits, that there are habits that leaders have built that served them well in the previous age of corporate leadership, but are big risks in the future and the current age of, of, of leadership. And changing habits is difficult. It's not impossible, but it's it's difficult. And I think leaders need help to do that. And uh, again, you know, what I hope is that in the book just gives people space to think and gives them uh, some ideas and some resources that will help them shift shift those habits well i think a lot of of 
the challenge of, of making change is trusting that this change is the right change. And, and the more people that put out, you know, books and knowledge and information that echo this, uh, it gives them a chance to defend themselves. And, and it's not like, oh, I'm going to do this and nobody else is doing it. In business, nine times out of 10, one of the best sales techniques is to say, oh, well, you know, this isn't, you're not the only person doing this. You know, five other companies that you're actually in competition with are doing this. So no, you don't have to use this product or technique, but you know, don't come running to us when your business is collapsing in five years because you didn't take it up. So you can put a lot of pressure um, in your argument about we have to make this change now because this is where the companies that are leading the industry and have the potential of profiting from this are uh, jumping on board. And if you jump on board too late, then you don't get a lot of benefit from it. Then it's a lot of catch-up. It's trying to um, make your organization change quickly, and that can damage the organization. So in the long run, it makes a lot of sense to research by reading books like this and then jumping and going for it. Yeah, you know, and it, and it's it's you know it's my job to sort of think about these things, to research these things, to to write. You know, I mean that's what that's my job, and that's my part of the my piece of the jigsaw. I mean, I was a business leader previously, and I know that you haven't got the time to sort of take a step back and think all these things through. You know, you, re, you rely upon other people to to do that for you, and then you want to get it in manageable chunks, whether it's a book or a, a talk or a or a video clip. You know, you so so. You know, it's not that I, I don't expect business leaders to to have to have had the time to to work all this out, but but hopefully they do have the time to to read a book or or, or just open themselves up to to input from the outside, um, which which maybe is giving them some valuable um, indicators of of trends and, uh, and and shifts that that could trip them up or could be or could be opportunities depending upon the pace at which they they move with them. Well, I think also that if you're going to build a company that's based on trust, then you yourself have to trust other sources, other companies to be doing the right thing. And if you don't trust anybody, how can you build an organization that has trust at its core? Yeah, yeah, I think it, you know, it, it, it does start with that individual decision um, about uh, yeah, whether you live in a, a world where your assumption is people can be trusted or whether you live in a world where the assumption, the starting point is people can't be trusted. And I think that's, that's a very fundamental belief, isn't it, that the leader holds. And um, it's very difficult to build a trustworthy organization if the person at the top has an attitude of people can't be trusted because, you know, you, you tend to, it tends to be an element of self-fulfilling um, uh, these, these beliefs that, that we have. And um, so the person that the, at the top, the people at the top of these organizations do have an undue influence uh, on the overall trustworthiness sort of question because what they say and do gets examined and, and mirrored and copied and, and then replicated, you know, throughout an organization. So I think there is a, a real responsibility for those people to um, to think hard about this and, uh, and, and shine a light on, on themselves um, because that's a big factor in terms of leading by example that that's that's a big factor in, in in what actually sort of then creates a ripple of either a ripple of trust or a ripple of fear in in an organization hmm. 
Now let's dig down into this book a little bit. Do you think it's a book that somebody can read or should read cover to cover, or is it a book that you should, you know, check out the content and saying, you know what, I'm just going to check out these nine habits. What do you think they should do? Yeah, I've deliberately written the book to be very accessible and to be um, an easy read in that sense. You know, uh, it's based on academic, my, my own uh, sort of doctoral research. It's based on some very rigorous work by, by my, my own research, but other people as well. But I, I'm, you know, my background is as a practicing leader. So I wanted to write a book that I would have liked to have read you know, <laughs> 10 years ago. And, and those books were not academic books. They, they were practical books, accessible books. Um, so I've written this book in a punchy, sort of varied, fast-paced style so that, you know, I think you could pick it up and hopefully be engaged and then read it. I would like to think people would read it cover to cover. Um, that's obviously the ideal, but it's written in a way that there are different sections. Um, there are interviews with existing you know, chief executives talking about trust. There are, there are case studies of like coaching conversations with chief executives who are trying to develop these, some of these habits that I talk about. And then there are models in there and um, uh, psychological sort of models that can be used to, to practice these habits. So I think Hopefully there's something in there for, for everyone and um, sufficient variety that you, you can, if you, if you want to cherry pick and pick and choose, you can do that without losing the, the flow of the book. Hmm. Well, for, for a book coming out of uh, England, it is very American. And, and when I say that, it's broken up into to, uh, smaller chunks. There's, there's more visual help. It's, it's got um, a much more... Uh, broken down table of contents uh, compared to the average book that I, you know, and we've done lots and lots of books coming out of England. And um, they tend to be academic tomes with teeny tiny printing and pages and pages and pages of text. And and I know in North America, people would flip through the book and say, I, I can't handle that. I, I, I just can't get into it. Um, and it's great to see a book like this come out because... Uh, we're very busy. The world is a very busy place, and we have way too many things to distract us. We've got like Facebook, and we've got Twitter, and then we've got the kids, and we've got the boss that's yelling at us, and then we've got a sh constantly shifting market, and everything is changing really, really quickly. Oh, and now you want me to read this 250-page book that's probably crammed 600 pages worth of content into it. So um, I think it's a good move, and, and um, you know, it makes sense because you're, you're putting out a book on – trust and, and becoming a trusted executive. And if you do that and make it impossible for the executive to actually get the knowledge, what's the point of the book? Yeah. And I, I, when I was writing the book, I, I looked at it and I thought, really, this is 80 blogs. You know, what, what, what I'm looking to write here is 80 blog posts. Um, uh, and the, you mentioned like the table of contents and, and really each, each chunk of a thousand words I saw as a as like a blog post, and I thought, if if the worst came to the worst, and somebody read just this one lot of one thousand words, could they still get something from it? Would it still make sense and uh, and be um, worthwhile? So, I, you know, I write a blog, and you know, I think that is, you know, very much the style these days that people engage with. And so, I, you know, when I thought about the book, um, I thought, yeah, this is this is eighty blogs. Now, obviously, obviously, you have to weave them together. You have to create that narrative across all of those but but i hope that that's the sort of style that uh, that's there and that and that therefore as you say for, for very busy people can 
can make best use of their time. And what, what, one, of, one of the things that happened at the moment in this country, the, the book's been um, shortlisted for, uh, by the Chartered Management Institute for their, their book of the year in, in the commuter read category. And, I, and I'm really, I'm, I'm delighted, I mean, delighted obviously with that overall, but the commuter read category, I thought, yes, that's, that's great. If this is a book that, that, that people think can be read as part of a commute, you know, in a busy day, uh, in, in chunks of like 15, 20 minutes of time, then, then great. You know, I, I feel that's, that's a category I would be glad to be, to be in. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I hope that that's, um, that's the case with, with the book. I'm obviously interested in what you said about the, you know, the North American market and, and how it might be received there. Um, and, and the different styles, if you like, that, that maybe we have in over here to, to you in terms of how books are written. Um, but yeah, if, if it can have that international appeal, then, then great. Let's talk a little bit about um, dealing with an organization that isn't trusted or, or basically got caught with its pants down and fixing that. Do you think this this approach, this philosophy is when that happens to your company, it's a great opportunity uh, to change your organization from the core because then you could, at least as a lead, you can say, hey, look, at we really screwed up last week. We got caught with our pants down. This is bad. We're going to suffer. We're going to have layoffs. We're going to have to restructure, but we're going to make it a better company over the next three to five years. And instead of trying to just like, oh, I'm really sorry and continuing on the way you were before. Yeah, I think I think unfortunately some companies do do change that way. In other words, it takes a big wake up call uh, for there to be a sufficient uh, focus and urgency to create a platform for change. You know, and and and, and uh, I think that's a I don't think that's the best way to sort of f- for it to happen. But I mean, it can it can be used as a catalyst to to really make a, a deep uh, and serious change. Um, but but as as we see with examples like Volkswagen or or, or BP or you know FIFA organisations like this, they, they they pay a huge price to 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 um, to approach change that way. Um, you know what what I'd prefer to see is um, is that organisations measure this. You know that they that they have a a trust index that they that they measure the trustworthiness that they are um, earning with their stakeholders, whether it be clients or employees or shareholders, um, that they actually track that, that they benchmark it, and therefore they are much more alert to identify problems before they become headlines. Um, and, and then they, and they react to those. If they see issues there, then yes, that can give them the evidence and the business case to, to tackle the problem. And I think... 10, 15 years ago, we used to talk about employee engagement in the same way that we talk about trust. You know, nobody really measured it, but everybody said it was important. Um, and I think trust is is a bit the same. Everybody says it's important, but nobody's measuring it. I, I, I interviewed 30 uh, CEOs um, in, in preparation for the book, and, and not one of those organizations is measuring trust. Um, and, and so I think it's a cliche, but, you know, what, what gets measured gets done, and there are tools that would allow people to measure trust. I think it's just a case of having the will to, to implement those in the same way that we've implemented tools in business to, to measure employee engagement. And now we think that's normal. You know, we have our staff surveys and we, we have our Gallup polls and we, we measure and we, we track that. And there's no reason why trust can't be measured and tracked in the same way. 
um, but not many people are doing it right now. Well, do you think it's just people think, well, how can you how can you track trust? How can you measure it? Isn't that an untrustworthy thing to do? And, and it, it's kind of like the stigma is trust is like love. It's 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 not an actual physical thing. It's not like a profit and loss statement. So so how, what tools are out there, or, or what headspace do you have to have, or, or do they have to redefine the word trust so they can wrap their heads around it? Well, it's, I think. It's- Great, what you said there, yeah, about trust being like love. It's, it's almost as if it's like a mystical thing, you know, and it's 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 wrong to measure it. Um, but you know, it, this is business. You know, we 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 need to uh, break these things down and get our arms around them. And I think part of the, the the model that's in the book, you know, where we have the three pillars. As soon as you break trust down and you say, oh, it's about ability, it's about integrity, it's about benevolence, and then you can break those um, pillars down. And you know, I can talk about nine habits. You know, three habits under each pillar. And then now uh, what, what, uh, what's been developed for use with the book is a 360 feedback tool which has behaviors for each of those habits. So we end up with 27 behaviors for nine habits, for three pillars, for one word called trust. And then if we get feedback on those behaviors, um, we, can start to, um, we can start to measure it. Um, so maybe the purists would 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 criticize me for making lo- trust less mystical and we you know we 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 should keep it in this hallowed uh, undefined space but you know at the end of the day as a practical business person um i don't buy that you can't that you can't nail it down i think you 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 can nail it down the the research has been done that that, that should allow us to um to make this tangible and and the moment we make it tangible we can do all the things with it that we do in every other part of business um, in terms of um, measurement, tracking, and, and taking action. Yeah, it, it makes so much more sense. I mean, uh, as much as I like when you say it was like a mystical thing that you shouldn't play with, it's if it's not being done, and the reason it's not being done is because there's not enough stats for the person to sell it to the board or for people to buy into it because they see that there's risk involved, then you're actually damaging. So it's an actually it's it's the opposite of what you want to have happen. So yeah, I definitely whatever needs to get done so people realize that it has value. What's the ROI of trust and how do we how do we track and measure that ROI against other things that we're tracking? Um, it's going to be very, very difficult for people in C-suite or middle management or lower management or even the guy in the truck delivering your stuff to be able to stand up and say, hey, we have to change this particular thing because it's killing me out there. People don't trust me. Uh, I can't deliver packages or um, it's impossible to do X because of that. So once again, it's not only leadership doing it, but the whole organization getting it and everybody being conscious and aware that trust is one of the most important things that we have to be aware of and to document it and track it and talk about it in meetings. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, if the world of business suddenly changes and, and doesn't need that sort of uh, justification and that ROI, then, you know, fine. Um, but it, uh, but the world I see out there now, it still, it still demands that. And, and we, we have to therefore do the hard work to make trust um, tangible um, in, in a way that allows it to, to compete for attention in the boardroom, you know, which is, which is the reality of what, what has to happen. Hmm. Well, like in a competitive environment, and I want to touch on this because I think it's important. You mentioned FIFA earlier on. What about sports and trust? Is that something that, that is, could change the way people look at trust um, 
you know, do you trust your 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 team? Do you trust the team members if they do something wrong? Do people overreact? That type of stuff. So, is there a correlation between sports uh, and and trust with the team and uh, the stuff you're talking about in the book? Yeah, I think I think the world of sport, the world of politics, the world of business are all subject to the same forces in terms of uh, social media. Um, you know, millennial influence, the um, diversity uh, agenda, you know, that the, the, there are pressures now being brought to bear that are questioning uh, each of those worlds in, in, in quite ha- harsh ways. And, you know, sport, you know, I suppose, you know, there's the FIFA scandal that, you know, you look at cycling and, you know, the Lance, the Lance Armstrong sort of saga, which has damaged trust to such an extent now in that sport that, there seems to be a paranoia uh, now there, which is that you're 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 guilty until you're proven innocent. Um, you know, is now the, the the prevailing attitude. And once that starts to take hold, you you do undermine the the sort of uh, values of a of, of a sport, and and I suppose the the original purity of of that uh, pastime. And and uh, you know, it, you know, you you start to I think uh, alienate sponsors you alienate spectators you know so i think it, it's it's not immune it's it's a it's a, it's a very similar challenge um and and, in, and the world of politics i mean we, we we see it being played out there i mean we had a, a referendum in our country earlier this year on whether to remain in the european union or not and uh much to many experts surprise we voted to come out of the european union and there was some research done around that which suggested that the vast majority of people who voted to leave the European Union um, didn't trust anybody in authority uh, to tell the truth. Um, and therefore, when you get nine out of ten experts saying, actually, the best thing is to stay in Europe, well, we don't vote in line with that expert view because we don't trust those people. We don't trust that they're um, that they're representing our interests. So you have this weird uh, situation where the people we trust are the people we you, know, you mentioned the pubs earlier. You know the people we trust are the people we bump into down the pub, um, who might not be experts on geopolitics, but but nevertheless we sort of trust them because they're one of us. Whereas those other folk, we sort of see them as they're in a different world. They they don't relate to me. They don't care about me. Therefore, why would I? Follow them, even if they've got a PhD in economics. Um, this is the sort of weird um, sort of world that we we're moving in now, where we trust our peers um, much more than we trust those in authority, and 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 that's 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 not the world that we lived in for most of the twentieth century. Well, I think also if that is a, a fundamental shift, and I, I, I truly believe it is, uh, especially if you you know have a Facebook account and you look at some of the posts that come on were absolutely ridiculous, and people really think that this is the truth, and ten seconds later it's a no, this is actually is the debunked thing, and you mention it, and then they get all oh well that site that debunks it is you know is being manipulated by so and so. The people that want to believe what that person's saying will believe them blindly and the people that analyze it and get frustrated with um, have no time to spend with those people because it's a waste of their time. So it, it, it's this weird, weird state we're in. So it's almost like it goes down to the individual. So, you know, Joe 
uh, down at the bar and you're having a drink with him. And before he opens his mouth and basically uh, lies or says something that he hasn't fact-checked but he just heard or he's just kind of made up because he's trying to entertain, if he understands that his form of entertainment is actually changing the way uh, a country or a community or the person you're chatting with opinion and to the... uh, not a wrong opinion, but an, uh, an uninformed opinion, and then it kind of it, it, it steamrolls from there. I think that's what the problem is. So it's almost like the individuals have to become more trusted and not, you know, I, I just don't think people understand that they whatever comes out of your mouth is an incredibly powerful thing, and people will believe you, and they won't check to see if you're lying or give them a hard time, and I'm notorious for doing this drives my wife nuts is the kids will ask me oh dad why is this guy blue and then i'll say well you know it's a long story and it happened when you know and and i'll go on this ridiculous fairy tale thing and the kids are eating it up because i'm the father figure and why would i lie to the kids and then my wife has to jump in you do realize your dad's joking with you and they say yeah yeah come on i'm giving you a hard time but they're up until that point they're thinking, oh my gosh, there's these fairies that go out and they paint the sky blue. This is amazing. This is fantastic. That That's the problem. I mean, when you're in a, a pub situation or in your social media, you're trying to glean um, feedback from people and get attention. And that's a very addictive thing. And you've got to realize that if you're, if you're, partake, if you're giving people knowledge that um, is false or not fact-checked or inauthentic then what are you doing yeah it's it's and to me this is linked like a little bit with power you know that the 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 social age has given people power that they didn't previously had uh you know the the, so it's like this redistribution of of power but with but with power comes responsibility and I'm not sure we got used to that. I think the power at the moment of of living in this social age is is going to our heads, and we're thinking, "Wow, great! I can, I can post this, I can say this, I can influence the world," you know. And and it's like quite intoxicating. Um, but but probably what we'll need to come with that at some point is is a greater sense, as you say, of of the responsibility of of the impact of that 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 influence um so we're, we're in this strange period where where maybe the power has shifted the people who had it previously the people at the top if you like we've sort of we sort of discredited uh them and their power is sort of moving to a broader more more sort of democratic sort of place but but those who have now got power who weren't who never had it before uh, you know maybe we, there's also a, a challenge there that you know you have to you have to sort of um have some degree of uh, responsibility around around that otherwise we we do end up in a very weird place and i i think i think it's a transition i think you know it's it's a big thing isn't it that that, that technology has, has has let loose um and it takes time maybe to for these things to just evolve and move on and, and maybe we're just at that point where we're a little in a little bit of that um we can see what's going and, and and the problems of that, but we can't quite see what's coming and the and the and the benefits that 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 will bring and and people get a little bit frightened in that space. But you know, I'm overall I'm a I'm an eternal optimist and I and I, and I do think there is a ultimately a very positive thing going on here. But but I suppose the leadership responsibility is to try and usher it in and uh, in and and make sure that transition is as as constructive as it as it can be 
What about the tools that you mentioned? Uh, you've got these tracking tools where you can track a little bit on trust. Where where should people go to learn more? Well, I have um I have a website um, johnblakey.co.uk. Uh, and, and on that website, uh, there's various downloads, uh, various resources. Um, for example, you know, the, the, there are assessment questionnaires where people can uh, assess themselves against these three pillars and these these nine habits, which I think is a, a very practical thing as a first step. Um, but there are also yeah video clips. Um, if people if people don't want to read but they like to watch uh, and learn that way through video, then there's lots of video clips on that that site um and uh yeah example interviews with with leaders that i've uh, discussed this topic with if if people just want to know what other people are up to in this space um so yeah that's that's a resource and and there are also links from that to other people in the space who are you know doing doing great work whether it be in north america or uk or europe or elsewhere in the world there are there are a lot of people at the moment, working on this topic, and um, you know, therefore, there's there's various um, different models and resources that people can hock into if if it happens to you know just fit their language better or fit their culture better to work with with one approach rather than rather than another approach. Because, uh, but I think we're all we're all trying to nudge it along in our own way. We've been chatting with John Blakey today. The Trusted Executive, Nine Leadership Habits That Inspire Results, Relationships, and Reputation. And boy, you have got to get this book. In fact, if you're a leader, I would highly recommend you buy several of them and hand them out and get people to read it. Uh, Fascinating discussion. John, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Bob. It's a pleasure. And uh, yeah, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.